Can you imagine what it would have been like 2,000 years ago to be a disciple of Jesus? To have followed this king for, for three and a half years, fully expecting for him to establish himself on the throne of his father, David. To reign over the city of Jerusalem, to reclaim the nation of Israel from the oppressive hands of the Romans. To have so many hopes and dreams fixed on this one man, this one person, Jesus Christ. Only to watch him suffer and die a brutal death on a cross. Can you imagine what that must have felt like? I'm sure there are a number of words that we could use to try to describe that kind of emotion. We could use words like heartbroken, devastated, disappointed. Those are helpful descriptions, but, but think about this. When everything is falling apart for these disciples, when the man they followed is put to death, I think that we need to find a better word than just disappointed. They weren't just disappointed that Jesus died on the cross. They were left feeling numb, dull, without hope. They were left feeling empty. Emptiness is a feeling we can all relate to, can't we? Emptiness is something that all of us feel, no matter who you are. And it's a feeling that we experience when the joy in life when the hope that we have in life, when the anticipation we have, when it vanishes without a trace in an instant, the feeling we're left with is emptiness. Now, I realize we have a lot of people in the room this morning, and so I don't know all your stories, but I'm pretty sure that many of you came in here today and you're feeling empty. For those of you who came in today and right now you're feeling empty because you have a, a marriage that's falling apart, you got married with all these great hopes and expectations for what life would be like. You, you thought you'd live happily ever after and then problems started to come in your marriage and they're problems that repeat themselves over and over and over again like a broken record. Now you're finally at the point where you're kind of like, I don't think this is going to work. I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. The feeling is emptiness. For those of you in the room who maybe have a grown children, but one of them is wayward and they're going off and they're living in ways that you know are destructive and damaging and you know that as a, a, a grown-up and, and now you're, they're not under your roof anymore that you've lost your child and you're hoping and praying for them but there's nothing you can do. You have no way to help them. And it's left you feeling empty. Perhaps there are others in the room who recently there's someone who you loved so deeply, you cared for so much, and yet they passed away. And now this person in your life who you, who you were so close to is gone and you don't know what to do with your life. You don't know where to go. You don't know how to act. It feels like life is without purpose at this point. In those moments, you're feeling empty. See, emptiness is an emotion that we can all relate to. All of us at some point in our life have feelings of emptiness. It's unavoidable. It's part of life in a fallen world. And it comes as a result of all sorts of challenges that can come our way. Whether it's unresolved conflict, brokenness, illness, depression, anxiety, fear, or death. Emptiness is common to us all. It's all around us. 
and nothing has changed in 2,000 years ago. We feel the very same emotions that the disciples felt when they saw their Messiah, Jesus, crucified. It's an empty feeling. And so the question I want to answer this morning, or at least ask right now, is what do we do when we come in a place like this and we're feeling so empty? What do we do when our world is falling apart and right now our heart is so grieving? How do we fight against this emptiness? This is the question that we want to ask this morning. And so I want to encourage you because this morning I believe we have an answer to this question and it's found in the Word of God. And so if you came this morning and you brought your Bibles, go ahead and crack those open to the the book of John. It's in the New Testament. If you didn't come with the Bible, that's cool. If you got a, a Bible on your iPhone and want to follow along there, that's great. If you just downloaded our mobile app for the first time this morning, just a shout out to the mobile app. We've got a free Bible built in there too. You can follow on that way. Or if you just want to watch the screen, it's all good. We're, we're, we're cool with any of that. So you can follow along. We're going to be in John chapter 1 to begin in just a moment. And just want to let you know this book, John, that I talk about, this is actually a letter that was written by a man named John who was a follower of Jesus. And he wrote this letter to give an account of the story of Jesus. And in this letter that he wrote, one of the main characters that we hear about is a man named Simon Peter. Some of you may have heard of Simon Peter. And Simon Peter is talked about quite a bit in this letter. And he is someone who is very familiar with the feeling of emptiness. Simon Peter is a man who knows exactly what we're talking about when we say we feel empty. He knows. And so if it's okay this morning, I want to tell Peter's story. You see, Peter's story, it all started when there was a new person who entered into his life and his world got flipped upside down. Now, I just want to kind of take a little sidestep for a second and mention something. I can relate to Peter in in, in a way right now because there is someone new that just entered my life that has flipped my life upside down. I just, I'm a proud dad and I know we have a, a big crowd here and some of you don't know who I am, but I still want to show a picture of my newborn daughter born less than a week ago. Yeah. You, yes, I'll clap for that too. Her name is May Margaret, and she is beautiful and a wonderful blessing to her family, and uh, we're so excited to have her. And with the addition of this new baby, that puts the total count of my children now up to five kids. So we have five kids in our household who are seven years old or under, and uh, even just saying it out loud, it makes me kind of feel tired and exhausted, to be honest. I think we got a picture of, of the crew here, so... Yeah, this is in the hospital, and if you look at the picture, I do want you to know, I haven't slept very much, but look at me in this picture. I look so exhausted. You know, labor and delivery was hard on me. I got to be honest. <laughs> I had a really hard time. And I know what you might be thinking when you hear that I have five kids who are seven and under. You might be thinking, do we, honey, did we walk in the wrong service today? Is this Frankenmuth Catholic Church, or is this the, the Frankenmuth Mormon Church, or is this maybe the, the Frankenmuth... Amish convention, I don't know if that's a thing, but I want you to know, if you're part of our church normally, it's not weird to have five kids. Let me just say that. Our, our church is full of young families with lots of kids, so if you got kids, you're going to fit in if you want to come to our church, but uh, we love it. But if you ask any parent at our church what it's like taking care of young children, they will be honest with you that your life flips upside down. Your life changes. And for Peter, his life, he was introduced to someone who flipped his life upside down, but it was not a child, it was someone else. And so I want to begin to explain this to you. So the story of Peter, it really begins in John's gospel. We're introduced to a man who is a fisherman. He has a fishing business, 
And he has a brother named Andrew. And we don't know much about his background, but most scholars think that Peter's father, Simon Peter's father, died when he was young. And so they had this fishing business. And so they were raised by someone else, a man named Zebedee, who had two children who you might also have heard about. Their names are James and John. All these people are disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And so one day, Peter, he's down by the river, the Jordan River, with his brother, Andrew. And while they're there, there's a man who's preaching. His name is John the Baptist. And this man, John the Baptist, he's baptizing people in the Jordan River. And all of a sudden, as he's preaching and baptizing people, someone shows up, a man named Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus shows up to the scene, and immediately Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he meets Jesus, and he's blown away as he spends the day with Jesus by the teachings of this man. He, he can't believe who he's found. And so immediately, Andrew, he goes to his brother, and he wants to introduce his brother, Simon Peter, to this man named Jesus. And notice the language he uses as he introduces his brother. This is awesome. Uh, Andrew goes, this is the first thing Andrew did was find his brother, Simon, and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. Now, this is important for us to know because it sets the tone for the rest of Peter's story. From the very beginning, as Peter is introduced to Jesus, for Peter, Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a good man. Jesus wasn't just a great prophet or a wise old sage or a mentor. Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the Christ. He was the anointed one of Israel. Now, what is Messiah? What does that title even mean? Well, I want to just explain this real quick. Just so you know, uh, the word Messiah or Christ, it literally means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, often people were anointed, but they were always people who were very important. So if there was a prophet who was being commissioned, uh, he was often anointed. Or if there was a priest who was being established, they would anoint him. Or if there was a king who was being coronated, they would anoint him. And so anointing was a big deal in the Old Testament, but in the Old Testament, specifically, they talked about an anointed one, a Christ, a Messiah. And this was someone who was going to establish an everlasting kingdom, a dynasty for the house of David. This is the one they prophesied about. And so for Peter, Jesus wasn't just some religious leader. He was coming in, and he was about to overtake all of Israel. He was going to overtake the Romans who had power and authority in that area, and he was going to initiate a revolution for the Israelites, ushering all the promises of God. He was the great prophet, priest, and king. That's who Jesus was for Peter. He was the Messiah. And so from the moment that Peter met him, he started to follow Jesus. He was convinced of this truth. In fact, he gave up his fishing business. He put down his nets, and he began to follow Jesus full time. And just to give you one more glimpse of the fact that Peter was so convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, I want to show you from Matthew's gospel. That's a letter that another follower of Jesus named Matthew wrote. And in chapter 16, Jesus asks a question of his disciples. This is the question Jesus asks. He says, who do you say I am? And notice Peter's response here in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. See, for Peter, he was convinced. There's no doubt about who Jesus was for Peter. And so for three and a half years, Peter walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He followed Jesus and learned from him. He saw the blind receive sight. He saw the lame walk. He saw the sick healed. Peter saw the dead 
raised. His life was flipped upside down the moment that he met Jesus. Which this means, though, by the time we get to John chapter 12. So if you're in John chapter 1, we're going to move on over to John chapter 12. As the story begins to unfold and Peter has now been following Jesus, we get to a point where Jesus now enters into Jerusalem. And as he's entering into Jerusalem, Peter, along with all the others, they think this is the moment, man. Jesus is coming. He's about to rule and he's about to reign. And this is why we read in John chapter 12, this is what the people begin to do. They took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, which means God saves. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. You see, everybody believed that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was about to rule and reign who were there that day. They thought he was about to take over. That's why they laid palm branches. In fact, historically, if you study the nation of Israel, that symbol of laying down palm branches, that was reserved. That was a symbol of messianic hope. It was reserved for the Messiah. So they believed that Jesus was going to come and reign. And so fueled with hope and fueled with excitement and fueled with anticipation, Peter, he begins to make promises to Jesus in the very next chapter. And you might be familiar with some of this story. Peter says, Jesus, I will never leave you. Jesus, I'm with you to the very end. I will never deny you. I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. And how does Jesus respond for those of us who know the story? Nope. Don't make a promise too quick, Peter. Jesus says this. He says, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. This is what Jesus says to Peter. And what happens next? Well, the story continues, and we know only a few hours later, Jesus is arrested. And after Jesus is arrested, he's brought before this religious group of people, this uh, elite group of people in Israel, scribes and Pharisees. And there he's falsely accused. He's arrested. He's beaten, and he's threatened with death. And in this moment, as Peter knows that Jesus has been arrested, as Peter knows what's about to happen to Jesus, we have a scene where Peter is now in the courtyard, and he's talking to some people, and they recognize him, and they say, hey, weren't you a guy that was following Jesus? And what does Peter do? He denies him. Three separate times, Peter denies his Savior, Jesus, and immediately after he does it the very last time, the rooster crows. And in the scriptures, in in Matthew's gospel, we hear these words that Peter, he went out and he wept bitterly. Now, I want you to know, I I don't cry all that easily. I'm not that much of a crier. I'm actually really masculine, so I don't cry, um, which is why I'm able to pull off this floral tie today. So I'm confident with my masculinity. But I have, I have to admit, I have had moments where I have wept bitterly. And I know that some people, maybe you're not a crier either, but for many of you in the room, you know exactly this feeling. You know what it's like to be so grieved by something that you go and you leave and you weep bitterly. This is what happened with Peter. This was devastating. And after this, we don't hear much about Peter for a little while because the truth is, Peter did what everybody else did at this point in the story. He ran off and he went into hiding. Because Peter didn't want to end up like Jesus. He didn't want to be crucified like Jesus. And for him and the rest of the disciples, not only were they hiding, but they were beginning to doubt. They were beginning to doubt whether Jesus was actually the Messiah at all. After all, how can a Messiah be killed? How could the Messiah be crucified? In fact, some of the disciples at that time, they're quoted as saying this in Luke's gospel. It says, we had hoped 
that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now for all you English language nerds out there, you know that the verb there, right, it's past tense. We see this in the Greek as well. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, which means there was a time where they had hoped, but that time is now gone. Their hope is gone. So they're doubting the fact that he was even a savior to begin with. I imagine for Peter, this is the epitome of emptiness. Think about it for a second. Think about the story of Peter so far. His promises to Jesus are empty. His hope in Jesus is empty. And now his faith in Jesus, it seems, is empty. And Peter knows what it's like to feel empty. I hate feelings of emptiness. I hate the fact that we experience this emotion in our life. Uh, I'm sure that for some of you, like I said, you're, you're feeling empty right now, but I feel like maybe there are even some of you this morning who came in here. Maybe you didn't even know if you were going to come to church or not. You kind of were hesitant, but you came because there's something going on in your heart and in your life that you're looking for hope. And maybe right now you're feeling especially empty. Maybe you feel more empty now than you've ever felt in your entire life. And so the question we ask is, what is the remedy for emptiness? What hope do we have when we feel so empty, when we have this void in our heart? Well, I want you to know, I want you to know that we haven't finished the story yet. The story isn't over. You see, three days after Jesus was crucified, something else turned out to be empty. As the women, they gathered and they were going to bring spices to put at Jesus' tomb. They showed up there, and when they arrived on the scene, the stone had been rolled away, and the tomb was empty. And immediately an angel appeared, and he said, He is not here, for he is risen. Jesus Christ. God's true Messiah, the anointed one, he didn't come to conquer the Romans in Jerusalem. He came to conquer sin and death. So the tomb was empty. And the empty tomb means no matter what you're facing in life today, God gives you hope. I want you to hear that this morning. God gives us hope. The moment Peter realized that the tomb was empty. And the moment he understood that Jesus had rose from the dead, his hope was restored and his life was transformed forever. Now, I want to pause for a second. Jonathan mentioned something that I, I feel like I need to mention as well. This is to all the skeptics in the room. I love how he shared his story. I'll, I'll talk just in a second about some of mine for a moment. But I realize when I begin to talk about things like angels appearing and Jesus rising from the dead, all the skeptics in the room are probably going to begin to roll your eyes. Maybe you got dragged here today by a spouse or by a friend. You're, you're here kicking and screaming or, or you're here willingly, but you just go in your heart, you know, this is a, a load of garbage. I don't believe any of this stuff. You're probably wondering when the unicorns are going to enter the story and the leprechauns. I get it. I get the skepticism. I have done several funerals in my life and throughout the funerals, I've never had a body pop out of the casket in the middle of the eulogy and go running somewhere. That's never happened. I'd quit my job if it happened because that would be crazy, but it's never happened. So I get the feeling of skepticism. I've had moments in my life as well where I've been skeptical. And for me, very similar to Jonathan, I was so skeptical that I said, you know, I don't even want to begin to read Christian authors on this topic because for me, that's tainted. That's biased. I want to begin reading historians. And so for the skeptic in the room, let me just make a couple statements real quickly. The crucifixion of Jesus 
It is a historical event. Historians do not deny that Jesus, the one who is from Nazareth, who claimed to be the Messiah, he was crucified. So that is a historical event. The other thing that's historic is this. Jesus, his tomb, it was empty. Nobody denies the fact that there was an empty tomb. Now they try to explain all the different reasons why they think the tomb was empty. And and believers, many Christians will say it was because he rose from the dead. But people who aren't Christians will often have other reasons why perhaps the tomb was empty. But I want you to know, Jesus did die. It's historical. And the tomb was empty. But for me, this was the evidence that really worked in my heart and, and made me believe in the truth of the scriptures. Jesus had all these followers who after he died, they went into hiding. But when he rose from the dead, according to the scriptures, their lives were transformed. And we see this especially in the life of Peter. I want you to know that when Jesus died on the cross, Peter hid. But when Peter discovered the empty tomb, he gave the rest of his life. He devoted himself to proclaiming the good news of Jesus. This, in fact, this is history. Peter himself, he proclaimed this message even to the point of death because they crucified Peter but they didn't crucify him in a normal way. They flipped it upside down because Peter said, I'm not even worthy to be killed in the same way as my risen Savior. You want evidence of the resurrection? When people who are around Jesus see him rise from the dead, when Peter, who has breakfast with Jesus after he rises from the dead, he goes, hey man, this dude's alive. I'm going to devote my life to it. That's evidence. And Jesus appeared to not just his disciples, but to many, many people who attested to this truth. You see, for Peter, the resurrection was the hope that transformed his life. And I just want to show you this, because after the resurrection, Peter wrote a letter. And this is what Peter says. This is key. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through, catch this, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I want you to hear me this morning. No matter who you are in the room, no matter what you've done, no matter what your story is, in the midst of an empty world, God is giving you hope this morning. According to his great mercy, God gives us the opportunity to be born again to a living hope. In fact, the Bible says that if we confess with our sins, that Jesus is Lord, or confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. It says we will be saved, we'll be spared from the wrath to come. But not only that, we get to experience the hope of the resurrection. Now, what kind of hope is that? Does it mean that when we believe in Jesus, we don't have any more problems? No. I'm not going to tell you that today. We're always going to have problems on this side of heaven. What it does mean, though, is this. It means that the challenges you're facing this morning they don't have the final word. The challenges you're experiencing right now, they don't have the final word in your life. They don't have the authority because when we place our faith in Jesus, we have a hope that one day he will raise us from the dead with Christ. And on that day, everything that's wrong with the world will be made right. So here is the hope of the resurrection. Conflict doesn't win. Brokenness doesn't win. Illness doesn't win. Depression doesn't win. Anxiety doesn't win. Fear doesn't win. Death doesn't win. Jesus wins. This is the hope of the resurrection. Amen. Jesus wins. He is the risen one who will return one one day to establish an everlasting kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness. 
So no matter who you are in the room this morning, if you're feeling empty right now, I want you to know God has the remedy. He's offering us living hope. He has a better option for us. So here's the big idea. If you take anything away from today, this is it. The tomb is empty, so we don't have to be. Like, this is the amazing hope of the resurrection. This is the amazing hope. God is speaking to you right now, and he is proclaiming to you, the tomb is empty, so you don't have to be. You have a hope in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you have hope of a resurrection, not just his resurrection, your own resurrection, that one day, the challenges you may face, those will fade The hope of the resurrection means there's light at the end of the tunnel. So embrace the empty tomb this morning. Not everything that's empty is bad. So many things about our life which are empty, it's bad. But the tomb being empty, this is the greatest news in the history of the world. So embrace the empty tomb. The tomb is empty, so we don't have to be. So as we close, I just want to challenge you not to look at the problems you may face in this life, but to look to the risen one. Look to Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus Christ. Follow Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can trade your emptiness with a living hope because he died and then he rose again. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for today, for the living hope that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. And I realize that as we gather here, there's so much going on and we leave here, it's going to be an opportunity for us to spend time, many of us, with friends and family members and And some of this maybe become a distant memory for us. But Father, I pray that for every single person in the room, especially those who are feeling empty this morning, those who are struggling, those who are wrestling with challenges and issues and problems in their life, Father, I pray that you would speak this truth to them this morning, that the tomb is empty so they don't have to be. Father, I pray that you'd be working in this place this morning. Your spirit would be at work in hearts and minds, drawing people to yourself for your glory, that they might behold the light, the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ, the risen one. And so, Father, we praise you and thank you for all that you've done and all that you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.